Welcome to At Altitude. Speed is the ultimate capability in a new weapon system. The core capability of a hypersonic weapon is the ability to fly faster than Mach 5 while remaining highly maneuverable. This makes the weapon much more difficult to track and intercept. That capability increases lethality and in turn, the weapon's value as a deterrent to our adversaries. However, the physical speed of these new weapons, or any weapon for that matter, is irrelevant if said weapon cannot be delivered quickly to the warfighter. This is the kind of speed that truly benefits force lethality, according to Major General Patrick C. Higby. Higby is the Director of DevOps and Lethality for Dr. Will Roper, Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics. While his role is chiefly to devise and implement strategies to combat cybersecurity threats and then rapidly deliver cyber, digital, and IT capability to the force, our conversation quickly illustrated how speed and calculated risk in research, development, prototyping, and fielding of any capability not only increases lethality and readiness, but positively impacts deterrence, innovation, and the attraction and retention of technical talent for the Air Force. So in keeping with the theme, let's quickly get to our discussion on DevOps and lethality with Major General Patrick Higby. I'm Joe Eddins. And you are at Altitude. Thanks for doing this for us, sir. So um, the first thing I want to ask you is your title, DevOps and Lethality. Um, it's not an either or thing. It's not two separate things. So maybe talk to me a little bit about what the objective of your office is and how those two things pair together. Yeah, so that was a interesting uh, question. When I came into this position in my first meeting with Dr. Roper, uh, he also had a question about my duty title at the time, which was something totally different, but really didn't resonate with what was uh, trending and what was gaining importance. So we were, we were struggling with what's the right uh, way to capture my role, and my role is sort of to nudge the culture uh, in a different direction, not just the culture in the Air Force, but the culture in the building in general uh, with all the... Uh, politics and stovepiping and all the other challenges that we face sometimes when we try to do something agile or DevOps. So we came up with DevOps as being part of the title. And when I say DevOps, I include DevSecOps, as Nick Chalin, our chief software officer, always reminds me. So what would that be? What does that stand for? So Sec adds the security aspect. So the, the original DevOps of 15 years ago wasn't necessarily very security-minded. But today, when we say DevOps or DevSecOps or SecDevOps, we always throw in there is a big security aspect to it, as you, especially as you develop code and then deploy the code. Uh, that has to be done in a secure way with hardened containers, and all, there's all sorts of other techniques to use with that. And then we threw in the, the lethality piece, because at the time, our Secretary of Defense, it was uh, General Mattis at the time, uh, he was big on lethality. Those were one of his three pillars. And we were trying to influence that uh, message, especially to our industry partners, that you know we're, we're not just doing this for some uh, admin system. That This is war fighting. This is giving American men and women and their coalition partners an edge against the enemy 
to make sure we hit the right targets, we don't inflict unneeded casualties, and by the same token, we also cherish our own uh, lives that are put at risk in combat. And so that's sort of the, the dynamic of lethality. If you think of it as, you know, how, how do you measure lethality, right? It's how many bad guys I kill, sort of divided by how many good guys I save, or, or you know, you, you get the gist of lethality as a balance. So it's not just inflicting on the bad guys, it's also preserving your own force. So let's roll back just a little bit. Let's pretend I don't have a clue as to what you're talking about. I am acronym challenged. Explain what DevOps is. We've already heard about the security portion yeah. of it. So what does DevOps mean and what does that, how does that uh, perpetuate itself in, in the actual development of programs and, and weapon systems? Yeah, so the DevOps came out of the software encoder world in the, some would argue, in the 80s and 90s, so it's been around for a while. But the concept was that the developers, so the dev part, those that are writing code or apps or software packages, they were historically not well connected with the operators, either the operators of the network or the operators that were gonna consume that code. So what DevOps endeavored to do was to bring both of those together. And so you have a, a very well-integrated team where you're continuously checking with each other on what, what's needed, what do we have to do, and continuously delivering product. And that, that's the idea, is that you have a continuous pipeline of valuable product, um, in this case software code, but it, you could apply it to anything that's continuously being updated based on the needs of the user of that product. Yeah, when we were at Kessel Run, they used the word iteration all the right. time, which is basically how software companies that build apps for your phone do it. You get right. a basic product and then they continually upgrade and add. Right. So um, so explain the, in the what has been the traditional kind of rift between the engineers who develop it and say, wow, we built this really cool thing, but then by the time it gets to the people who use it in the field, it's actually used a very different way or doesn't do so. Right, or it's not delivered quickly enough at the speed of need. And so that, what DevOps or Agile, what that replaced was called the waterfall process where you have lots of intelligent engineers that are very capable and they come up with something that then gets delivered to the field. It takes a long time because you're, you're, you're deploying a full solution vice a prototype or a minimally viable product. You, you, it's the full up solution that you've invested 10 years of work and billions of dollars. You get it deployed and that's the first time that the warfighter gets to use it. And they're like, wow, this, has, you know, this needs a lot of work, right? And then it would go back to the engineers and then they'd come up with a B version that would take another 10 years and so on and so forth. And in, in today's environment, it, again, the velocity of change, the acceleration of change, that's just not a, a viable um, architecture to have. So that's why Agile and then later on DevOps and DevSecOps, uh, why they caught on not just in industry, but now also in the Department of Defense and in the joint fight. And is that why Dr. Roper talks continuously about the fact that speed is the most important aspect of development of weapon systems. That's exactly right. And what the, the challenge with speed is that implies more risk. And as you know, this building is very risk averse. No one wants to be the one you know, that leads failure, 
Um, so, so there's a reluctance there, and that's part of the, the culture change of nudging people to be more comfortable in accepting risk, getting that minimally viable product out there. Vice always talking about the perfect solution that we'll get in a couple years. No, give me something now that works, and then I can give you immediate feedback on it, and we can continue to iterate. It's got to be difficult because I would imagine that there's, I mean, the youngsters coming up have lived in this world. Mm -hmm of things changing on a daily basis. But there's got to still be a lot of people in powers and powerful positions, decision-making positions, who've gotten hit in the nose with the newspaper enough times that they might be a little skittish of right. this concept. So maybe explain how you try and... Yeah, so I'll, I'll even reach back to historical examples. Before we started, you mentioned the P-51 and the FW-190. If you look at the uh, history of how the P-51 came about, I would argue that's a DevOps case study because that came about with, again, a minimally viable product that was put out there. It wasn't quite right. And then all these other ideas sort of came along of, hey, can we put this Rolls-Royce Mer Merlin engine in there? Hey, can we do this? Hey, can we give it this kind of gun sight? Next thing you know, you have one of the best fighters uh, on the planet that helped us win World War II. Now, did it still have shortcomings? Even when it was mature, sure, it, was, it wasn't well suited maybe for the Pacific domain uh, where you had to travel long distances uh, and it didn't have all those navigational aids that some of the more expensive larger fighters did. But in terms of what we needed it for at the time, which was bomber escort uh, to defeat Nazi Germany, that was the perfect system. And it could go beak to beak with enemy fighters and come out on top. But the key was, is that the 51B with the Allison engine was out there doing what it could do. Right. Until, and getting feedback from the pilot saying, hey man, our rate of climb is not good enough. Yep. We can't keep up with, the, with this new 190 and... Well, and the, and the employment concept, how it came about was actually the British uh, Purchasing Commission was desperate um, to get more uh, fighter aircraft to do ground support. So they um, approached North American, which was a small U.S. company, and said, hey, can you build some P-40s for us? And North American counteroffered and said, well, the P-40, that's sort of an outdated system at this point. We think we can build you something newer and more modern and use some sexy new technology like laminar flow wings, squared off wings, the Meredith duct on the bottom. None of this had been done before. And this, this is a, you know, a quote-unquote startup fighter company saying these things and the British were so desperate that they said yeah we'll do it but we want our first prototype within four months right so it was a very quick developmental timeline and this company again with no history and some would say no baggage of designing fighters up to that point came out with this P-51 which the British called the Mustang um, that had the Allison engine in it same as the P-40 and, and it was used in combat that way by the British, and they realized, hey, this, this airframe has way more capability than the engine is giving it. And so there was this guy at Rolls-Royce that said, hey, wait a minute, I think I can take that engine out of the Spitfire and put it into the P-51. And again, the, the bureaucracies in place said, well, in Britain at the time said, whoa, we can't do that. We need all these Rolls-Royce engines for the Lancaster bombers and yada, yada, yada. So that's how Packard got permission to build the Rolls-Royce engine here in the United States. And that's what most of our P-51s were outfitted with. So again, there, there was no one from the quote unquote air staff or the Pentagon involved in any of that. 
That was industry and coalition partners taking risks, making stuff happen, and then suddenly it dawned on us as our bomber crews are getting slaughtered, hey, if we had some of those P-51s, that would be a game changer uh, for our air war against Germany. So what you're saying is, is that what you're attempting to do now, this culture change, is not a new culture. It is not. This, this has been done many times before. We, today we call it DevOps. You know, five years ago we were calling it Agile. Industry has been calling it DevOps for quite a while. But a lot of these concepts aren't new. It's just the get, getting out of our box that we sometimes get ourselves trapped in of we, you know, we, we have this and we can't change now because it's too risky. So let's talk about what this does for the warfighter. What this what the benefits are of developing systems this way are for actually the people in the field and how you would explain that to somebody on the hill who's holding the purse strings yeah. making the decisions on the money and then let's also talk about the person on the hill that's been there for 20 30 years and seen programs come and go and some have succeeded and some haven't and some have been fish shaking this is such a waste of money type things right how do you explain to them that allocating a certain amount of money and taking risk at the front end is actually a better way to safeguard the taxpayer money than doing it the old way. Yeah. The, the best way to convince them, I believe, is to build trust through some successes. And again, in, in a real DevOps uh, risk accepting environment, you, you are going to have failures, but you want those failures to inform the next success. And so after you do it for a while and you can point to some successes like, you know, the modern day P-51 kind of stories. And we have several of those, not just in the Air Force, but in the other services. What would be some? So the, um, you know, we, we, the, the one that Kessel Run celebrates, the, the original, uh, you know, DevOps software package was the tanker planning tool that grew out of, you know, we were doing things in a very industrialized way in our, uh, combined Air Operations Center with grease pencils and boards and trying to schedule tankers. And, a, you know, some lines of code, again, working with the people that were actually going to use it, and you create this product that saves a lot of man hours and comes up with a way better solution in terms of planning where to put your tankers to conduct a certain portion of the air tasking order, which is taking the fight to the bad guy. And so, that, that uh, degree of automation and using an algorithm to, to figure those things out, that's way faster than having a bunch of very smart people doing it sort of the old-fashioned way. And so that, that's just one example. There, there's many others like that. But, but we, those are the ones we need to continuously be pointing to, to to show the Hill, hey, this works. Now, break, break, we also have to let them understand that when we started this, we weren't quite sure what the end solution was going to look like. And that's the other big hurdle that we have is we, we don't, in, in today's, you know, requirements structure, I don't necessarily know where I'm going to end up when I start with something. And so, and I'm continuously changing as it goes. So what we think might be the destination today, five years from now, we might be over here somewhere better than we thought we were going to be. So I don't want to, um, you know, trap the, the DevOps team into you have to end up here because somewhere else might be better. You mentioned uh, iPhone uh, in one of the earlier questions. So, you know, for the, for the warfighter today, in many cases, what we're, what we're delivering to them is a, you know, pristine rotary dial telephone system with a cable that 
you know, and in their private lives as airmen or soldiers or Marines or sailors, they're using iPhones, right? And it's like, what? I joined the military to have this high-tech experience to, you know, do good things and schwack bad guys, and I'm, you know, I'm burdened with this old technology. And so what we owe our young men and women that are, have vowed to put their life on the line to defend the Constitution of the United States, we owe them the best technology that America has to offer. And we have many industry partners that are alongside and, and stand strong in that message to say, hey, we want our American fighting men and women to have the best technology available. And that's not a rotary dial phone you know, attached to a landline. It's an iPhone that is continuously getting updated, getting new apps, getting refreshed, getting new security hardening put on it continuously. So, you know, you mentioned the, the tanker planning tool and how much money that ended up saving was one of those things that you could, success stories that you could go back to Congress and say, see, look, <laughs> we, we took a risk on the front end, but here, mm -hmm. here was the payoff. So maybe, ex maybe explain a little bit about 804s and OTAs, acquisition authorities that kind of go hand in hand with the DevOps thing. Yep. And how do you explain to someone who's been on the Hill for a long time what the advantages are of making those mistakes at the beginning and spending money as you go to iterate instead of one big large chunk. Right. So the um, OTAs, you know, a lot of times the other transactional authority, that's what OTA stands for. Uh, there, there's sort of two flavors. There's the prototyping flavor and the experimentation flavor. The, the um, strict OTAs, um, we should, well, let me rewind. You can do either. You can take a uh, product that's already in the commercial sector and say, hey, we're going to buy this and we're going to experiment with it and see if it works. Again, historical example, the M16 rifle, Vietnam era, first plastic rifle put into combat, so on and so forth. That was done under an OTA. So again, these, these aren't necessarily that new. Uh, the 804, the Mid-Tier Acquisition Authority, that what that's trying to get after is for uh, these middle tier programs, so not the super big programs, but sort of the middle tier programs, we don't need all this excessive documentation that's been inflicted over years because, again, historically, when you look back at programs that have failed, those failures usually end up in some kind of legislation that tries to point at, you know, this is what went wrong in that program, so now we're going to write a law to prevent that from happening. And, th and that... Uh, volume of laws has continued to grow and grow and grow to the point where now when you try to do something fast and you're confronted with all those laws, it makes it really hard to go fast. And that's what the uh, 804 was supposed to be incentivizing. And again, in the Air Force, we dove full in and we had, I don't remember the count, but it was dozens of programs that went down the 804 path and saved 100 years of, of labor and acquisition timeline, cut that out, um, which is a, you know, that's, again, that gets delivery of capability to the warfighter faster. That's what we're trying to do. 804 does that. So I would. In I'm sorry, and you, you mentioned the fact that it not only applies to programs being developed from the ground up, but programs that are taken off the shelf that already exist and are augmented. You said yeah. the M16. Does the MH139 fit into that? Yeah, so the. 
the uh, question on helicopters is, you know, do I need to develop a all new military specific helicopter or can I use something that's already in the civilian market that already has shown reliability, make the few minor modifications to it that I need for its military applicability and then put it out there, begin to use it and then begin to iterate. And again, those, there are uh, many opportunities to do that from and everything from firearms, handguns, all the way up to helicopters and maybe even trainers, uh, aircraft. So there's, uh, and part, part of this also is when we look at our defense industrial base, uh, are there opportunities to, to bring along, like especially smaller companies that have some very genius ideas that we could use in the Department of Defense to help our mission that are also then viable in the commercial market. And that's another uh, tack that Dr. Roper is taking is can, can we become like a venture capital company, the United States Air Force, where we look out, we see this small company that has something and we're like, hey, we could use that in the Air Force, but I don't wanna create another defense contractor where your only customer is the United States Air Force. I want you to also be viable in the commercial marketplace with that product. Now we might use a version of that product that's adapted for military use, but in general, whatever you've got is gonna be commercially viable as well. And so those, those, there's tons of opportunities uh, in the United States, again, with our intellectual capital that we have, which I think is a strategic competitive advantage vis-a-vis -vis some of the adversaries that we talk about in the national defense strategy. All right, so you steered us down this road. Let's talk about pitch days. Okay, pitch days, the, uh, that was a phenomenal opportunity. Again, we start with a small business pitch day. The first one we did in uh, New York last year. We were there. You were there. We were there, Just, and when it was over, we were downstairs at the after party, and we actually had one of the per people that got a contract say, quote unquote, I got a contract today faster than I got a beer at the bar. Yeah, and, and got paid for that contract. I mean, that, that was the, really the game changer was not only do we sign a contract with you, but again, these small businesses that, that are going like day to day, dollar by dollar, they need to get paid right away. And so the idea was pay them within that 15 minute timeline. And some of them were getting paid in like one or two minutes. Um, so it was an amazing opportunity. What, what astonished me prior to pitch day, I went to a uh, AFSIA breakfast. So the uh, Armed Forces Communication Electronic Association, it's a uh, government and industry group, um, professional organization. And I was talking at a breakfast for small businesses. And so they, these were a lot of small business owners that have many fantastic ideas. And I was stunned at how, um, what, what a barrier they perceived there was to do business with the Air Force. And you've heard Dr. Roper hit on this too, where you, know, you stand in this long line at, a, at the amusement park to get on the roller coaster, and then you finally get to the front of the line and there's a sign, you, know, you must be this tall to ride. And these small businesses are like, I just wasted a whole bunch of time. They don't have the platoons of lawyers and contracting experts. It's usually one or two or three people that have some kind of product that we could use in the Air Force. And yet, be because of our burdensome acquisition process, they never get to play. And so that was the idea behind Pitch Day, is let's just open it up where you put together five slides, one page, that's your proposal. It gets evaluated, we, we ingest all this, we get panels of experts to evaluate which ones 
seemed to meet the need the most in terms of what our requirements were. And then those were the ones that were invited to come make a pitch. And so that was a huge success. And the idea was we don't need to run it out of the Pentagon. We can, this can be decentralized and any um, contracting office in the Air Force or any other services can, can do it at their local base, camp, station, whatever, and, and be successful in that. The other thing that astonished me with these small businesses is they didn't necessarily know where, where to go to see what were we looking for in the pitch day, right? We had talked pitch day, pitch day, pitch day, but they were missing some of the details. So I was able to pull up, during this breakfast, I finally said, hey, you've, you're on a computer, can you bring up the SBIR website? And with a couple clicks, we were able to get to the place where it listed all of those pitch day requirements that we were looking for. And, and their eyes start opening up because they realized, hey, I actually have something that could meet that need. And these, and these weren't all, you know, we, we sometimes get enamored with the big weapon systems. A lot of these were small little things like a, uh, a, better, a better breathing tube uh, for casualties on the battlefield. And there was a company that got a pitch day award for that. Again, it's, it's completely commercially viable, um, but now they're a partner with the United States Air Force to help them get through all of the um, approvals and all the other things from the other government entities that get a vote when it comes to medical supplies in the um, civilian sector. I was, I was in the room when they pitched and, yeah. and it was astonishing to me. They talked about intubation tubes coming loose, mm -hmm. how many deaths, extended casualties, you know, when you're, when you're working in a combat operation mm -hmm. system, how much, how important that was. That yep. was something I never even knew. Yep. Obviously that's data coming in from the field yep. from combat rescue. Yep. And you all are putting that together and saying, hey, we need to fix this. Is that pretty much how it goes? Well, and I, I would argue that the company actually got its start not based on feedback from military users. It got its start based on feedback from EMTs that also work in very chaotic uh, environments. When you come up on the scene of an accident, things aren't always stable. You got to move casualties or injured people around. Some of them need breathing tubes. You're then moving the patient around from, you know, a gurney into an ambulance, going through traffic, and the thing can fall out. So let's come up with a better solution. So the, so the, um, I think that the product already existed, but it's, it still requires some approvals. I don't know if those approvals have been forthcoming yet, but the, the good news of Pitch Day is with the Air Force as a partner, you now get a little more, a little more clout to where you go to the FDA or whoever and say, hey, I've got this thing. It can work not just for a military user, but it can also work right here on the streets of America or in the emergency rooms uh, in America where these tubes fall out as well. So um, just before I move on here, is there anything just on the general concept of DevOps uh, that you want to talk about that you think I should have asked or? Yeah, so the, the one challenge with DevOps is we, there, there's a temptation again in this building where we're always looking for efficiencies. There's a temptation to see DevOps as a money saver. And I have to speak up about that because DevOps is not about saving money. DevOps is about being more effective uh, for a warfighter, being more lethal for a warfighter. Again, back to the duty title question. And so you, you have to understand that when you roll out this minimally viable product, 
So it could be an app for your phone or it could be a, a software module for the combined air operations center or anything like that. That continuous delivery and continuous integration continues, right? And so you're, you're, you always have a DevOps team that's taking care of that product. So when you think in the old term of sustainment and you're, you're making improvements as you're sustaining, that comes at a cost. You're paying those people to, to be the, the caretakers of this product and to continuously be um, engaging with the users of the product daily, right? And then de deploying new software updates. It could be daily, it could be multiple times a day if you're doing extreme programming, but daily, weekly, monthly, and then maybe as, as the product ages, okay, then maybe you're only doing a release once a year and you might not need as much human capital bandwidth to be paying attention to it. But where it's not a, it's not a widget that you deliver and then you're done and it never needs attention again. DevOps is continuous. So, there, so that sustainment tail, as we call it in the industrial age, that sustainment tail is still there. It's just that sustainment tail is now different in the sense that you're not just sustaining the current capability, you're con continuously improving the capability up to the point where the operator, the user of the product says, hey, we think we need something different now. And then you've got to spool up another DevOps team to say, okay, what are you talking about? What do you need? Where do we go? What's, what's this new thing you're trying to do? What's this new capability you're looking for? Can I explore a tangential uh, perspective on that? A lot of warfighters that we spend a lot of money training in various disciplines have spent a lot of years saying, nobody listens. Now people are listening mm -hmm. on a weekly, sometimes daily basis mm -hmm. about what they need to do their job. Is this, I mean, I'm sure there's probably not data on it, at least not yet, but is this a positive influence on retention? Yep, I, I think it absolutely is because you're, you're giving the warfighter direct input into the tools that they're using sometimes in a life and death situation. And, and it's being done with, with all of that um, bureaucracy abstracted away because your, your DevOps team, whether it's in a software factory like Kessel Run or whether it's a dedicated team to some specific mission, that DevOps team, I mean, that, that is a close-knit group, and they are making stuff happen and, and adjusting capability the way the warfighter wants it with the warfighter right there. And that's, that's the amazing thing. Now, again, you can study, you can look back in history, and any, you know, any of the successful kind of things that we've done, it's usually predicated on a small team that's protected from the bureaucracy, that's given a mission to do, and they're usually successful. Your job kind of takes what appears to me anyway to be the two foundations, the, the first bricks that are necessary in building an Air Force of the future, and that's acquisition reform and incorporating cybersecurity from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Is that what, and maybe talk about the Crow's office and, yep. and how that all works together? Yeah, so there's, uh, you know, the, the evolution of terms is also interesting. You said cybersecurity. 
the in vogue term now is cyber resiliency. So you mentioned the crows, cyber resiliency. So explain to me what cyber resilient, that, those two words get thrown around a yep. lot, kind of like hypersonics, and nobody comes out and explains to grandma what that is. So maybe yep. you can explain that to me. So uh, cyber resiliency is make, in simple terms, making sure you can get your mission done no matter what happens in cyberspace. In other words, no matter what happens to your computers or your phones, or your RF links, you can get your mission done. That's really what cyber resiliency is about. Now, when you when you when you look at you know the original cybersecurity standards and stuff like that, they all had aspects of that in there. In civilian terms, we call it continuity of operations or continuity of business operations. And so, those of us that went through our uh, Security Plus training and CISP training, all those uh, aspects of cyber res resiliency were already there. But the, the idea is to quit, um, quit thinking just about you know, cyber resiliency in terms of I'm on a computer, I need cyber resiliency. It's I'm doing a mission and that mission is very reliant on what's happening in the cyberspace domain. So you better make sure that you have some of those uh, aspects of cyber resiliency built in. And again, some, some of this thought is still being developed. Uh, NIST is in, on the verge of publishing uh, 800-160, which is uh, 14 different uh, techniques to achieve uh, cyber resiliency. And it's, you know, everything from, hey, do, do we have divergent or diverse paths so to communicate with, all the way to, um, you know, are we uh, doing a good job deceiving deception of the adversary so that they don't have the easy targets to poke at because we're constantly putting up you know false targets and decoys and honeypots that they might be tempted to go after within the cyberspace domain but then um, pace planning so you know the uh, primary alternate contingency emergency that is an aspect of cyber resiliency so i have a primary way to get my mission done that primary way, I'm gonna take advantage of all those great electronic systems and computer systems and AI machine learning that's available. But if any one of those or all of those go, go away, I better still have an alternate way of doing the mission and then a contingency way and an emergency way. So I may start off with a very elegant, you know, high tech kind of strike and the emergency way may be, hey, we're back in the agricultural age and we might have to take spears and go fight the bad guy. So that's the, the idea behind resiliency is you're, you're gonna fight to get your mission done no matter what happens. And, and the very nature of, of cyber influence from an adversary is a lot of times that the, the hand of, of the attacker is intended to be hidden Mm -hmm. um, and it's or, not, or obscured, right? Yep. And it's not a situation where it's necessarily going to give you a, a kinetic type thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I, I remember back in the Gulf War when everyone was saying the Patriot missile was hitting everything, and we found out it was hitting nothing, but it was because of a software glitch. Point zero 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 one off on timing code. Mm -hmm that when you take the speeds and the distances involved had a missile blowing up hundreds of yards behind its intended target. Yep. I mean, these are, these are things that I think most people don't think about is that you know, a cyber attack is, is changing the timing on something. Yep. It's a big, 
it's a big thing that we have to look at. So that's a lot of different systems that depend on timing. Yep. Um, so maybe talk to me about the Crow's office, you know, and how, what their influence is and exactly what it is that they're doing. Yeah, the Crow's uh, stood up in 2016, I believe, and it was in conjunction with a, uh, at the time, CIOA6 initiative called the Cyber Squadron Initiative, which called uh, out this uh, entity called a mission defense team. So the thought was we would have the mission, the mission defense teams at the tactical edge associated with a specific uh, mission capability, be it F-16s or air operations centers or uh, B-52 bombers or tankers or um, presidential airlift support. All of those have mission defense teams associated with them. Again, they're at that tactical edge that can detect, hey, something is going on here, that invisible hand or that obscured hand you're talking about from the adversary, there seems to be something going on here. They're the, the cop on the beat that sort of know what their neighborhood is supposed to look like. They're the first ones that can see, hey, that window over there isn't supposed to be open. Let's go investigate. So they go in with the flashlight, they investigate, and holy cow, you know, there's somebody in there. Now, where, where do you go with that? And so the, the crows stood up as sort of that interface, especially when you talk about uh, legacy weapon systems like F-16s, which again are very cyber dependent, as we've learned in the last 10, 15 years. Um, you know, how, how does that team, that cop that's on the beat that says, hey, there's a window open in that F-16 uh, software that shouldn't be open right now, how do you get the right experts and engineers and PhDs involved that may have built that system or designed that system and facilitate a very quick turn response to that? And, and the response could be a whole number of things. It could be, hey, we need to ground that asset for now. We can't fly the next sortie because the risk is too great. Or it may be, hey, I think we can still fly with that vulnerability in place because we have other workarounds. Again, back to that resiliency discussion. Or it may be, hey, we can deploy some code very quickly and shut that window and get the adversary out of the system. Uh, but you need the expert that built that system originally to, to be in that discussion. That can't be an airman you know, on the flight line somewhere that's making some of those decisions. Now, in some cases, with the right augmentation, they might be able to, but we really want the crows to be that interface to the, to the real expert of a given weapon system, whether it's an aircraft, a missile, a helicopter, whatever, to, to understand, hey, if you're gonna tweak this, it may have these other uh, consequences to it, and then make that risk decision of, okay, well, we gotta launch the sortie, so grounding the asset is not an option. We gotta launch because we have other actors that are dependent on us striking a target. So you mentioned those airmen on the flight line, or literally, anywhere else cyber is involved in everything it is how do we get that level of education raised that sea level of of understanding about how cyber influences everything that we do across the entire force i mean we we went to the ccr up at AFIT and they were playing around with basically making a YouTube channel mm -hmm. where communities could feed mm -hmm. in ideas and things like that. Is that yeah, something all, all we- Yeah, of, all of that has happened. And we, we do have a, um, I'll, I'll call it the cyber AFSC. Um, we do have a tribe of cyber professionals that are trained to do that. 
but as you said, cyber affects everything. So now the, the question is, how do I open up that aperture to find more cyber talent that we may have on the force that we're not aware of? And so we came up with the concept of a cyber aptitude test. So just like you test for different aptitudes, like spoken languages, you can test for cyber aptitude. And you might find cyber aptitude in unusual places. It may be a, you know, a fuels troop uh, in an LRS squadron at a base somewhere that on the side you know, tinkers with Raspberry Pis and, and develops apps for phones and stuff. That's probably the guy that you want working to look at the digitized fuel pump that's pumping fuel to the jets when they're in the hot pad. He's probably the good beat cop to have on the mission defense team to say, hey, somebody's messing with that fuel pump, and hey, I might be able to circumvent it right here on the spot and allow the mission to continue without having to escalate up and get those higher level you know, SWAT teams to come in. And so the, uh, between the cyber aptitude test and opening that aperture up to see where else is there talent in the Air Force that, can, that we can bring to the fight, that and then the modularized training that you talked about, and we began rolling that out in 2014, um, not just in the cyber schoolhouse, but we actually tried some of it in, some of the, in the uh, financial management schoolhouse uh, when I was at uh, Keesler Air Force Base. Getting that modularized training, allowing some self-paced training, so you're not always training. So a certain module might be really easy for me, but might be really hard for you. Let me go through it at my speed, and then the next module, it might be the other way around. But don't, don't limit the, the learning. If somebody already has the skills, I don't have to re have them relearn it at the schoolhouse. We can do it remotely. We can do it through things like YouTube videos. Uh, all of that is now becoming available to our airmen. So any airmen out there uh, on the, um, the CSO, the Chief Software Officer webpage, there's a whole bunch of uh, training modules about DevOps, for example. So if you're that LRS Airman Fuels Troop and you say, hey, I hear all this DevOps stuff and containers and Kubernetes and what does all that mean? All of that is available to them. Again, in some cases, they may need their NCO to help point them in the right direction because you're, there's such a plethora of things that are vying for our attention uh, when we're trying to do our job that it's, it's sometimes not easy to find the resource, but I guarantee you it exists. And you mentioned you mentioned a uh, uh, a metaphor there, learning a new language, and we actually had that discussion with the head of the was it the DoD AI artificial intelligence? He was talking about we should be approaching this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We the the initiative is the computer language initiative. Right. Again, the the idea was to create something like the Air Force Leap program. Leap is language enabled airman program. So we have airmen, I'm, I'm an example of this. I mentioned earlier I was born and raised in Germany. So I speak fluent German. So I'm a member of the Air Force LEAP program. What does that mean? That means I have to demonstrate my proficiency. So I take the defense language proficiency test once a year, once every two years to maintain my language pay. And then every two or three years, I need to take a immersive course to keep my skills at the level they need to be at. And so we're trying to say, hey, can we use that same example where, hey, I've got this LRS airman that's really good at programming Python. Why don't I pay him a little extra for keeping that skill current and helping 
use that skill to further the Air Force mission. And then we have the, uh, you know, sort of a management framework where you, you now have a database. So if someone says, hey, I need a fuels troop in Japan uh, that can do Python, you know, to help in the wake of a natural disaster, boop, here he is, go and send them as part of a, a joint task force uh, to, to get a mission done, even though that's not in his or her normal, you know, daily duties. Um, but that's the, the nature of having airmen is we can't let ourselves get trapped by our occupational badges and AFSCs because our airmen are way more than an AFSC. Sure, they specialize in this one thing, but they have a very rich story and hobbies and experiences that, that can be brought to bear in certain situations to help get a mission done. So as far as the cybersecurity, how important is it making sure that that cyber resiliency not only extends to the finished products, the warp fighting systems that we use, but the supply chain from all yep. the contractors and the various companies that to <laughs> all these weapon systems yep. that have parts coming from a million different places. Yeah, that is, that's a huge challenge. Um, I was actually involved with our uh, general counsel's office because they were seeing the same thing and uh, bringing together the right team of folks to look at that. You know, take your pick of what it is. We're in the Air Force, I'll pick an airplane. Uh, we're building a new airplane or a new uh, pod for an airplane, and that uh, relies on a lot of uh, integrated circuit boards, uh, processors, chips, chipsets, timing clocks that all come from diverse different uh, places. And how do we assure ourselves that when they come together that they interoperate properly and that there isn't some kind of malware or malicious code or backdoor uh, baked into them that the adversary could then use in the future uh, to defeat that weapon in a way that would surprise us. Um, and that is hard. Now, again, in the commercial sector, this, this has been a concern for a long time too. And there are companies, uh, some pretty big name computer companies that have gotten very good and have a pretty good system of uh, supply chain resiliency and supply chain monitoring and uh, making sure that you can uh, you know track where a, a given product was made and that it was made in the right place by the people with the right clearances and it's not some uh, rogue uh, copy that makes its way in you know that the adversary tried to insert so there are techniques out there the the challenge for the Air Force again since we don't tend to make our own pods and airplanes, we usually rely on an industry partner, is what, what's the right balance for us um, to, to have that industry partner um, get the help they need when they need it, but also to be open to communicate to us when they have concerns. And we have a, and it's actually an Air Force asset, but it works for the entire Department of Defense, the uh, Defense Cybercrime Center uh, under Air Force OSI that specializes in just that kind of stuff. And I believe that they, um, their role will increase in the future as we move forward. And again, they need more uh, staff and help and all kinds of things too. But they, they're the right experts that can look at a given component and say, hey, this has something in it that, or this, this is behaving in a way that it shouldn't. So they can detect some of that as well 
and then find ways to circumvent it and then maybe use some uh, upstream uh, consequences for whoever the person was or the entity was that injected that into the supply chain. But supply chain is a big concern, uh, not only for DOD, but for our industry partners as well. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about commercial industry partners and working together, but then there's also a certain, shall I say, competitive nature, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to talent. Mm -hmm. um, so, so how is that going with attracting, not just, not just cyber, which seems to be a, a big thing, coders, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, to actually put on the uniform or at least come to work as, as an Air Force civilian, um, but also contracting people, mm -hmm. acquisitions people. How, mm -hmm. how, is, how is that going? What kind of things are, are, are being undertaken to try and attract new talent and retain talent? Yeah, there, there's a huge number of initiatives. One that I mentioned, the, again, the cyber aptitude test of finding talent in places where you may not think it exists. So, you know, there, there may be a young man or woman who grew up in the mountains of Appalachia that didn't grow up with iPhones and computers, uh, but they have a natural gift. You know, they're a gifted musician, perhaps. And guess what? Gifted musicians sometimes make really good coders. And so in, unless we can expose them to a, some kind of cyber aptitude test, we won't know that they have that ability. And then we could say, hey, you scored really high in this thing. Would you like to join this team uh, that's doing big, important things for our country? And I think uh, even today, despite all the bad rap that millennials get, uh, there is a desire to be part of something that in our generation we call bigger than yourself. So doing something for the greater good. And there are still young Americans that are willing to uh, step forward and do that. The key is attracting them. And then I, th I think once we attract them, we're, we're not gonna retain them by paying them more. We need to pay, you know, there is a certain minimum ceiling but we, I can't compete with you know, the, the big name companies in Silicon Valley in terms of uh, financial compensation. But what I can compete with is the coolness factor of the mission. Hey, you're doing something here that's either saving American lives or making Americans that are in, in combat somewhere more effective in uh, protecting our constitution. And there are, I would say on the whole, American millennials and the generation after them are still uh, willing to do that. The challenge is, you know, what, what's the environment that they're going to come into? Are they going to come into that environment where we hand them the rotary dial phone tethered to a cable? Or are we going to bring them into the force that says, hey, here's the iPhone or whatever that we're going to issue you a basic training. Your orders are on there. Your, all your personnel files are on there. Your training. Uh, program that you need to go through is on there, the links to all those YouTube videos, it's all on there. Um, where you need to go to get your uh, uniform issued, that code or that app is on there. That's the experience that they should be having, not here's your big rotary dial phone with the cable attached and then you need all these pieces of paper to go over there to get your uniform and then you need to go over here and get something called an ID card. So, so it's on us to make that, uh, you know, that environment conducive to especially that generation that grew up as digital natives where we don't bring them into an analog world because that will be a turnoff very quickly.
I would imagine a key to retention too is after you've trained them up to do these cool missions. That they're actually going to do it. Yeah, not having them stuck doing housekeeping things. Yeah. So maybe talk about, let's talk about how AI fits into that. Let's talk about IT as a service, yep. those different things and how how they play into it. Yeah, those, those are all great examples. So again, our uh, enlisted career field for coders, uh, 3DOX4, we have a number of case studies where you know, this, this good coder gets to go to Kessel Run and work on the tanker planning tool, for example, and absolutely love it. They're doing uh, paired programming you know, with an industry expert attached to their hip, learning together, growing together, uh, creating code that's being used. They're talking to the warfighter that's actually using it on a daily basis. So it's a very rewarding experience. And then after their six-month TDY ends, they go back to their base level comm squadron and they're the SharePoint administrator, which is not necessarily what they signed up for. Now, does SharePoint need to be administered at that base? Absolutely it does, but maybe now we have enough talent in that airman where they could use something like an algorithm or some kind of machine learning tool to automate that SharePoint administration aspect and then free them up to do the DevOps full-time, vice having to do a lot of the laborious housekeeping that could be done uh, through code or through an industry partner, and that's EIT as a service that you mentioned. Um, doing those things at uh, base, base level comm especially, not to save money, but to make it more effective. If you look at the AFNET today, and I, and I think most uh, that are in the, uh, working on the AFNET would agree, it is a complicated, convoluted mess. It's overly complex, and it doesn't, in, in terms of the user experience, if you ask most airmen, hey, how would you rate the AFNET? They're not gonna give it good grades. Now, if you ask them, you know, hey, how would you rate your experience with your iPhone, you know, what, regardless of who your service provider is, most of them are gonna say, it's a really good experience, They'll say, you know, there's times where I don't get enough bars or whatever, but in general, there's, there's an order of magnitude difference in terms of that user experience. What we're trying to do now is get some of those industry providers that provide that service for the commercial sector and for our, for our civilian lives to bring that experience into the Air Force and have them run the network at a base or have them run the network in a given region so you get the same user experience that you like in your private life, you now get that at, at work as well, instead of staring at the blue wheel of death, waiting for something to load. We did stories about this a while back, but let's talk about our civilian airmen, the A and G units, how important mm -hmm. is that in, when it comes to DevOps and contracting and acquisitions and cyber yep. Yep. to have people out there getting real-world experience in a different vein and bringing that in and that cross-pollination? Yeah, that's always, I mean, that's always been a huge success story for the Air Force between our, you know, our total force, as we say, Guard, Reserve, and uh, REGAF. In, in the Guard and Reserve, there's so much untapped talent that, um, and, and it's everything from coders all the way through to pilots even. Uh, that you know, if, if we can find the right ways to tap into that talent at the, at the time of need, I think it would make us a much more capable Air Force. Some functional areas have figured that out, um, and others, you know, it, it's hard because, again, a lot of these total force airmen 
have civilian jobs. And there's, there's also, you know, I can share anecdotes of, hey, you're, you're a, um, you know, a CISO, uh, uh, basically the cybersecurity officer for a high-end Fortune 500 company in your civilian life, but you're a defender, like security forces defender, in your guard role, uh, why, you know, can I make you a cyber airman? And the answer is, well, I don't want to do all that computer cyber stuff. You know, I want to be in a foxhole with a gun. And so you have to figure out, okay, what are the right incentives for someone like that to say, okay, I'll leave you in the security forces side, but can we leverage some of your cyber talent to make that SF unit more capable because you, you can do some DevOps things to manipulate the base defense cameras or the uh, detecting uh, detector systems that detect uh, nefarious materials coming to the base. You can manipulate those systems in ways you know, to maybe have a, a quicker response or more capable response. And you still get to carry your gun and uh, lay in the foxhole on the weekend if that's really what you want to do. And so I think it's, it's a real, you know, it comes down to understanding our airmen. And it's, again, it's that frontline supervisor. You talked about retention earlier. The, the two biggest, in, in all of the retention um, surveys and things that I've seen the results of, the two big factors that stick out is, is that does the airman feel tethered to an important mission? That's a huge retention uh, factor. And then the second is, what is that airman's relationship with our supervisor? That's frontline supervisor. That's not wing commander. That's not MAGCOM commander. That's not the chief of staff or the chief master in the Air Force. That is your frontline supervisor, the person that you're interacting with every day. If that is a good relationship and that frontline supervisor is keeping you inspired about the importance of the mission you're doing and how that plays into that bigger, uh, you know, doing something bigger than yourself, you're going to stay on the team. You're going to stay on the team. And we, we met a gentleman we did a story about when we did the ANG unit up at Glen Martin Airport. Um, and he had his own cyber security company. Mm -hmm. He stayed, he's staying in the guard and he was like, I never want to take off tech. I never want to put master on mm -hmm. because he gets to play offense. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be a pretty big yeah. incentive too for defense guys because that lets you look at problems from both sides of the fence. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're also, we're looking at that, um, you know, the, the up and out structure. So, you, you know, you've probably heard about the competitive category change on the officer side. A lot of that has to do with, okay, there, there are certain airmen that are, um, I'll call it tactically or technically gifted, that want to continue doing that. But our current promotion systems, whether it's on the NCO, uh, non-commissioned officer side or the officer side, don't always take that into account. They're, they're almost structured to be, you know, hey, you need to be a uh, command chief, mass sergeant, um, or you need to be the chief of staff of the Air Force. But I think there's a, there's a lot of airmen that would be, uh, feel very fulfilled in their career if we left them, quote unquote, on keyboard to do uh, what they love, but then you continue to advance them either in their status, which could be uh, pay or rank or some other way of recognizing, you know, that, that they're the Jedi Knight of, you know, the internet. Um, and they're on our team and we want to reward them for that. When, and they don't need to, uh, you know, be a squadron commander, for example. They might be able to stay tactical 
for an entire career. And then even the question of career comes into play. You know, we've always talked about are there opportunities, especially like for our um, civilian force, where you're, uh, you're on the team for a little while and then you go work for industry for three, four, five years, and then you come back, and then how do we, you know, how do we adjust that? I think we're getting to a point where we might be able to do that even for our uniform members. Um, the, the Guard and Reserve is a little bit like that, but even for the REGAF, you know, is there an opportunity for a captain to go work in industry for a couple years and then come back into the Air Force uh, and not be penalized for that gap in service? And we adjust their service dates and their promotion boards and all that kind of stuff. So you've stated in the past that the, that the career field pyramid in cyber is completely inverted. Yeah, so again, when I was the uh, career field, cyber career field manager, uh, when was that, two, three years ago, this was one of the challenges on the officer side. It ended up that in our inventory, we had more FGO positions than CGO positions. And normally, again, in a military hierarchy, you, you would have more company-grade officers that then you pick the best and promote them up, and so your pyramid should look like this. Uh, because of, uh, and, and the biggest hit was probably the PVD 720 cut of the 2008-2009 timeframe, uh, that harvested a lot of the CGO positions, and so it wasn't, um, the, the cuts weren't necessarily laid in in a way that made sense in terms of that pyramid. So you end up in a situation where you have lots of lieutenants and captains filling those billets, but you have more than that uh, requirement for majors and lieutenant colonels. And so that's where you end up, you know, in some cases it's a good opportunity where a captain fills a major's position or a major fills a lieutenant colonel position and they can work, you know, at, at an echelon higher than they normally would be able to. And some do really well at that and it's a great opportunity. But that's something that needs to get fixed. And I know uh, Trap Kennedy, who replaced me, uh, that's one of the challenges that he's looking at is how do we um, right-size that and are there places where perhaps we can trade FGO for CGO billets and fix that manpower map? Again, our, our manpower system in the Air Force is an industrial age system and that is something that um, you know, our A1 team is struggling with as well is figuring out how, how do we get that into the uh, DevOps and Agile age and I know uh, BK Kelly, Brian Kelly is uh, working hard on that and trying to come up with, you know, are there uh, different ways where we don't get trapped in the old think of, you know, it has to be a pyramid. There may be cases where if you're working as a team, it doesn't have to be a pyramid and we, um, we can leave our rank at the door, so to speak. And does getting away from being a one mistake Air Force enter right. into that? It, it, it certainly does. And as, especially, you know, when, when you talk about the risk appetite, uh, that's required to do DevOps or Agile well, uh, you, have to ha you have to be able to celebrate uh, those failures. Now again, I'm not talking about breaking laws and committing crimes, I'm talking about taking risk on something and it ends up not working out. Um, failing forward, you know, that's the term that the chief likes to use, is what do you learn from that failure to to enable your next success. And again, over history, there's plenty of examples of people that have failed and failed and failed, but they keep trying, they keep trying. And then eventually they hit that big success that makes all those failures pale in comparison. And again, whether we're talking about venture capital, 
And again, venture capital is predicated on a lot of failures. You, you invest in a hundred different things as a venture capitalist, waiting for that one big one to be the breakthrough. 99 of the rest aren't gonna make you any money. That's gonna do it for this episode of At Altitude. My thanks to Major General Higby and all our airmen and Air Force civilians getting capabilities into the hands of our warfighters faster and smarter. The At Altitude podcast is a production of Airmen Magazine, located at Defense Media Activity in Fort Meade, Maryland. Please check out the rest of our content at the Airmen website, airmen.dodlive.mil, or search for us on iTunes, Vimeo, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Flickr. Thanks for listening. Until next time.